Titans. Uh, I pitched the idea to Tim Wenger, the uh, the uh, head honcho here at WBN. Uh, he loved it. He came up with the idea of Hardline and the name Hardline. Uh, I hosted the show for about four years until May of 2009 when I declared my candidacy for the Erie County Legislature. Broke my heart, but I had to give up the show. Fortunately, Dave Debo was in the wings, and he's hosted it for the last nine years, doing a fantastic job keeping this important show alive. Dave, as you may know, recently got the opportunity of a lifetime or a great opportunity. He has moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, so for the next couple weeks anyway, I'll be hosting the show. I think it's important regardless of what happens uh, for the sake of an informed citizenry, I think is very important in Erie County, especially in an age of fake news allegations and an age of Russian bots and all the silliness of social media and everybody believing what they read on Facebook. Um, I think the show has to uh, stay alive. So uh, uh, I'm glad it is. And I, uh, I credit Tim Wenger here at uh, WBEN for buying into the vision and hopefully we'll be around for a long time to come. And and that's all I have to say about that. Now, let's talk about today's hard lineup. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined live in studio by Spectrum News's Capital Tonight correspondent, Ryan Whalen. We'll be talking about all things Albany. There's plenty to talk about that, especially with the recent passage of the state budget. At the uh, top of the hour, next hour, 11 o'clock hour, uh, Ryan and I will be joined in studio by a couple of assemblymen, one Democrat, Robin Schiminger, one Republican, Ray Walter, and we'll continue our discussion of all things Albany. We begin the show, however, with a call out to the D.C. area to a uh, Buffalo, uh, or actually an Amherst native, made good, uh, Chris Malagisi, who is the conservative book club editor-in-chief. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kevin, and welcome back. Now, now you're you're welcome. Now, listen, you're a Buffalo guy, and I notice we're we're calling out to you. And I had my producer Jerry Craig call you. You've kept your seven one six area code. What's uh, what's the deal there? Are you still on your father's plan? <laughs> uh, you know what? I am a Buffalo New Yorker uh, through and through, and uh, I still consider it home, even though I'm living in the swamp in D.C. Now, now uh, we met about 10 years ago down at uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which you had a large role in for a number of years. Uh, in fact, you were at this year's conference, and you, you hosted a, uh, a session there. Give us a little idea of uh, what you've done since you left Amherst, New York. Well, I <laughs> worked on a few presidential campaigns. <clears throat> ran CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, for a couple of years. Now, now, when you say you ran it, I mean you ran it. Yeah, yeah, I was the CPAC director and uh, for uh, the American Conservative Union, which hosts the annual CPAC conference. And and then now you're doing what? You're at the Conservative Book Club. I, I am now at the Conservative Book Club. It, is this a case of you're unable to hold a job? <laughs> well, it's a bit, it's not aging myself here, but I have. I left Buffalo around 14, 15 years ago, so uh, I had a few jobs, but all good, though. I, I'm Yeah, I'm editor-in-chief of the Conservative Book Club now, which is the largest political book club in the country with over 750,000 members. And, you know, if you're, if you're interested in learning unfiltered, no fake news about real news about conservative books, authors, interviews, and uh, want to keep up to date on the latest and greatest, um, 
conservativebookclub.com. That's uh, what I run and even host a weekly podcast. I, 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 I have to admit that I'd never heard of the Conservative Book Club before you, uh, um, you, you know, you got the job there. And, of course, we're friends. Um, is this the sort of thing where, where it's in the back of magazines and you pay two cents for the first 12 books and then they get you for life? Or, I mean, is there a subscription or how does this, how does this uh, what's the business model of the book club? No, it's a great question. It's not one of those old uh, book clubs where you pay a certain price and you get a book sent out to you. Really, Amazon and Barnes and Noble destroyed all those traditional type of book clubs. Um, we're an online platform for anyone interested in learning about conservative books and authors. You can sign up to get to know all the different books that are coming out in the year with your favorite authors. We do interviews with them. We even put together um, a conservative book bestseller list. To, uh, we have a partnership with Nielsen BookScan, and they're the largest aggregator of actual book sales in the country. And we put together a list every single week of what's hot and what's selling. You know, I think a lot of times conservative authors don't really get a fair shake in the mainstream media. And this is just an opportunity for them to uh, speak their mind, tell their story without the filter of the mainstream media. Uh, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Chris Malagisi. Chris is a native of Amherst, New York. He's made it big down in the D.C. area. Uh, and uh, he's editor-in-chief of the Conservative Book Club. Uh, now, uh, Chris, you mentioned podcasts. Uh, I had the opportunity yesterday afternoon to listen to a couple of the podcasts. One of them was with the vice president's uh, wife and daughter and the book that they wrote about the, the bunny rabbit. <laughs> and, and you know, you know, my son, uh, Jeremy, works down in, uh, in New York City with John Oliver on Last Week Tonight. And, of course, they did a parody version of that. Uh, you, you don't happen to know how the, how the Pences felt about that, do you? Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, I do. And for those who may not know the story, the vice president and the second family has a bunny named Marlon Bundo, or also known as BOTUS, Bunny of the United States. And <laughs> the bunny even has an Instagram page with over 32,000 followers. Um, what they decided to do, this bunny travels around with them. They decided to write, uh, Karen Pence, Mike Pence's wife and daughter, Charlotte Pence, decided to write a very non-political book about Marlon Bundo and a day in the life of the vice president. And just to learn, so children can learn, what does the vice president do? What is his roles and responsibilities? And a very charming, cute book. Um, John Oliver, the host of the HBO show last week with John Oliver, decided to kind of prick Mike Pence, based on his perceived views of the LGBTQ community, decided to write his own children's book where Marlon Bundo is gay, and, and it's a story of two gay bunnies falling in love. And, you know, on the surface, it's really, it is kind of funny what he did. Um, at the same time, you know, typically I'm a believer that, you know, the, the families of our elected officials are off limits, and... Karen Pence and Charlotte Pence did nothing. I mean, this this was an attack on Mike Pence, but he was attacking their um, Karen and Charlotte Pence's book. And I thought it was a little unfair, but I guess at the end of the day, they were both raising money for charities and causes. The Pence's were raising money for uh, the A21 campaign, which is a, a campaign to stop human trafficking. I think they were a little disappointed from, from what I heard uh, after when that happened, but they took it real well and 
And they're the number one children's book in the country I, I, at the time. I actually saw some of the Pence's comments, and I thought they 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 took it in stride. And hats off to them. Uh, one, you know, I listened to another interview, and that was your interview uh, recently with Thomas Sowell. Who, for those of you who are not familiar with Thomas Sowell, he's a uh, a conservative ec- uh, economist. He's also African American, um, and I thought that was a fascinating interview. And and I'll tell you, a lot of you know, a lot of what you were able to draw out of Sowell. Uh, uh, mirrored a lot of my comments about the president, about where the country is going and whatnot. Was there anything that was uh, stuck out from you, uh, stuck out for you from that interview? Well, thank you for listening, Kevin. And uh, yeah, Thomas Sowell's a, a legend, uh, legendary economist, conservative, uh, 87 years old. I guess when you're 87, you can say whatever you say what you want. Yeah, <laughs> I did ask him two questions uh, about what he personally thought of the president. Donald Trump and his whether or not he believes America uh, has a bright future ahead of it, whether he's optimistic or not. And with the president, I think he agrees with much of his policy, or at least the res- policy results, especially in the first year. But he, like I'm sure many people, are kind of you know hesitant about the way in which the president conducts himself personally. I, I think he said manners matter. Manners matter. Yeah, and as the free leader of the free world, you know. It's, it's a fair assessment. Uh, you know, it's, the president should be focused on policy, should be focused on messaging. But, you know, it's a shame that sometimes we have to spend several days in the news cycle talking about a tweet yeah. here and there. You know, you know, he also he also talked, he compared, he said he went back and he looked at tapes of the president, you know, Donald Trump, when he was in his 30s, and he compared it to his behavior now. Uh, and he said most people mature when they get older, you know, and they, they behave better. But the reverse has been true. I, it was an interesting point, and I always tell people if, they're, if they ever ask for a book recommendation from the Conservative Book Club, I always tell them, read The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump's book that he wrote in 1987, which, according to him, is the greatest book since the Bible, uh, just FYI. Uh, <laughs> his book, Art of the Deal, is interesting because he wrote that in 1987. Donald Trump still talks today like he did back in 1987 when that book was, was writ, uh, had been written. Um, so, yeah, Thomas Sowell, he's, he's a legend, he, but he also says, too, that he's not very optimistic about the future of America, which I found kind of surprising just because he's someone who um, has been at the forefront of every single major issue in the last 50 years. And, of course, he is an economist, which is you know, known as the dismal science, and uh, he, was a little, he was not as optimistic as I thought he would be. He thinks that uh, culturally we have, we have some issues in our country. We've been torn apart. We're at a hyper-partisan state uh, that he can, he can remember uh, in, in his mind. And um, that is a warning, I think, for, for people that we can take this partisanship only so far, um, but we, we have to take a step back and we have to look at our culture and you know, try to repair the political discourse in this country. It- it, it was a like I say, it was a fascinating interview. I found it very uh, in- engaging. Uh, if someone, if any of our listeners want to listen to that or any of your podcasts, uh, how can they how can they do so, Chris? Oh, I appreciate it. Just go to conservativebookclub.com and just go to the podcast section. and You can listen to all of them. We interviewed uh, Congressman Trey Gowdy and Senator Tim Scott, too, and uh, the legendary Dennis Prager as well, a national radio host and all good people, but yeah, no, we'd appreciate it, and it's for all free. Sure. 
Again, we're talking to Chris Malagisi. Chris, uh, an Amherst native, uh, grew up here in the Buffalo area, now down in the D.C. area, is editor-in-chief of the Conservative Book Club. Uh, Chris, before we go, I only got a couple minutes in this segment, uh, but I wanted to ask you about CPAC. You know, I, I, I met you, I think, in 2008 at CPAC. The first speech I, I went to, that was the year McCain faced off against Obama, but this was February, and it was the, the day, or it was the speech, where Mitt Romney dropped out of the race. And he was the closest challenger at that time to uh, John McCain for the nomination. And it was like jaw dropping. It was, it was amazing to be there. And I went to, to that CPAC in the next four and then I've, I've stopped going. How has CPAC changed uh, this year? I, you know, from the news reports I got, it seems to be kind of out on the fringe. Now, a lot of the mainstream or establishment conservatives seem to have moved away from CPAC. Is that, is that an accurate assessment or, or how would you uh, uh, size it up? I, I would definitely agree that there's a lot of new people at CPAC that hadn't been there before and somewhat good in a way that Donald Trump has brought in a lot of new different kinds of voters. For people not familiar with CPAC, it's kind of what I call like the Woodstock for conservatives. I mean, if you want to, <laughs> the largest annual gathering and, and very influential, and you get a great barometer of where exactly the conservative movement is right now, what are conservatives thinking, what are their policy goals. And it was interesting this past year, because I think there are many conservatives that after the first year, you know, the tax cuts, the Gorsuch uh, judge nomination, and, you know, some of the economy getting better, there were many that were kind of liking the results of the Trump presidency, but there were still many people that are a little hesitant and don't necessarily want to wrap their arms around mm-hmm. that. Um, I kind of call it a time of gliding, that we're just going to glide through November and see what happens. Is Donald Trump a splash in the pan? Uh, is he a disruption or is he really a, is populism and nationalism a real political realignment that's taking place? And if Republicans can keep the House and the Senate, uh, there may be a case for the for the latter. Yeah, well, it it, it certainly would be interesting to see, Chris. I wish we could uh, talk some more, but we do have to break. Uh, this station has to make some money. Uh, but uh, if you're just tuning in again, I've been talking to Chris Malagisi, Chris, the editor in chief of the Conservative Book Club. And again, that website, Chris, is conservativebookclub.com. If you want to listen to these podcasts or you want to read reviews of conservative books, right? Absolutely. ConservativeBookClub.com. And Kevin, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Okay, we have to take a break now, but when we return, uh, I'll have another quick interview before the bottom of the hour. And again, at the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined by uh, Spectrum News Capital Tonight reporter Ryan Whalen, live in studio. In the meantime, I'm Kevin Hardwick. You're listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. And welcome back to Hardline. This is Kevin Hardwick. Top of the hour, we'll be joined by a couple of assemblymen, Republican Ray Walter and uh, Democrat Robin Schiminger, my state assemblyman, Robin Schiminger. Uh, in studio now is uh, uh, Spectrum News uh, Capital Tonight reporter Ryan Whalen uh, staying over. If it seemed like Ryan was out of breath that first uh, segment, he's coming from his basketball, his Sunday morning basketball uh, you're you're in decent shape, much better shape than I am. I mean, you're you're okay now to continue, right? I I think so. I've I've caught my breath. I'm right. I'm ready to move on. That's good. Well, listen. Uh, as I said before, if you, we have some callers lining up, and if you want to join the fray, uh, give us a call eight zero three zero nine thirty. Uh, I want to talk with Ryan about the gubernatorial race before we bring in the assemblyman. Uh, but we do have a, a caller, an old favorite of mine, uh, John and Rochester. John, welcome back to the program. How you been? 
Hey, Kevin, I'm doing really good. It's good to hear you again. Uh, well, it's nice to be heard. Do you have a question for me or for Ryan or a comment? Yeah, yeah, I got a comment and a question. My one, my one comment is uh, uh, the, the fact that the uh, Republicans have maintained somewhat control of the Senate as long as they have in New York State, to me, is almost like a miracle. Mm. I know in my district here, my uh, state senator is Joe Robach, and it's a it's a Democratic district uh, by numbers, yet he has the uh, ability to skirt a lot of issues and actually come well, across as a pretty good well, conservative. Well, look, th- th- this has gone on for decades. I mean, the de- I, I, I mean, the Democrats have have like uh, 110 assembly seats out of 150, and the Republicans are like 50-50 in the state Senate. It's the same electorate. Uh, why does that happen? And, and one of the reasons is clever gerrymandering over the years. Republicans have been very good about drawing the districts that benefit them, and, and you know that's getting a lot of national attention now, especially in, in states like Pennsylvania, and, and eventually it'll make its way to New York. Sure. Um, um, anyway, that, that, your, your, your comment. Do you have a, a question also? Yeah, yeah. My question to Ryan is, uh, Liz Benjamin. I, I watched uh, the show Capital, the Capital Tonight uh, show quite a bit, and uh, I, I agree that she's very sharp. But uh, I don't know if it's my imagination or not. But when you get when she's on topics of uh, gay marriage, the Safe Act, or mm-hmm. legal aliens in New York State getting education, etc., uh, she's definitely. Uh, a homer when it comes to being being on the left, far left. And is that is my impression right, Ryan, or uh, is she more conservative? My my thinking and you, perceptions. You know, I, John, I don't. Uh, I actually don't read it that way. And it's funny. I, I I hear comments going the the same direction from people on the left. I think I think what Liz wants to do is keep people on her toes, uh, regardless of what it is. So it. If she ever seems to be leaning one way or the other, my impression is yeah. that she uh, wants to play the devil's advocate. She wants to keep her interviews on her on their toes. And uh, you, you know, I I watch the show a lot, John, and um, I guess I'm somewhere between you and Ryan. I think certainly personally, she probably approaches things from from the left, but I think she does a good job of. Uh, trying to play it down the middle. You know, I mean, I mean, I look at one of my favorite interviewers on TV was Tim Russert. There was no question Tim was uh, a liberal. Tim was, worked for Moynihan. He worked for Cuomo. But it was very difficult to tell when he had a guest on. He would put Republicans and Democrats on the hot seat. Um, John, thank, thanks for that observation. Nice talking to you again. we got to move on, but uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. That was John from Rochester. If you want to take that line that just opened up, give us a call, 803-0930. Uh, before we go to the top of the hour uh, news break, uh, Ryan, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm sitting here with Ryan Whalen. Uh, he is Spectrum News Capital Tonight's uh, reporter. Uh, from Western New York. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about this gubernatorial race. It kind of g- g- getting a little interesting. Mark Molinaro was in town, and you were following him around Western New York the other day. How did that go? It It, it is interesting. We were, we were getting worried it might not be interesting for a little while. Right? What, why and was then, that? Well, we, did, we didn't know uh, what candidate was going to end up coming through for the Republicans, and then all of a sudden we've got uh, – a candidate out of nowhere who had who had said he wasn't planning on running coming back into the race on the Republican side, and then then Cynthia Nixon announces as well. So, 
um, yeah, it's it's making it interesting. What, but what was it like following uh, Molinero around the other day? Uh, so Mark came to Buffalo uh, and and did a speech over at the Republican headquarters. Uh, talked a little bit to reporters and then went to Rochester. And uh, I have the joy of covering both Rochester and mm-hmm. Buffalo. So I. I went to the Buffalo headquarters and then uh, drove down the uh, throughway to Rochester, and uh, it, it was that 60-mile-per-hour wind day. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that so, was bad. Yeah, so I was driving down the road, and on the throughway, all of a sudden, those strong gusts of wind came through, and I saw this this tractor trailer literally come off of one side of its wheels. So yeah. it was just on leaning the inside over. wheels, leaning over. Somehow corrected itself, but it was, it was this terrifying thing. And then I got off 490. And drove up to the car that was next to that tractor trailer, and uh, it was Mark Molinaro waving to me. Uh, so I wow. got there and asked him. Uh, so it was almost uh, you. You would have gotten the scoop on that one. Yeah. Well, yeah. If we that, that was a scoop. <laughs> it's not you the story want. we wanted to no, cover. That I'm day. sure. Yeah, I'm I sure. asked him if he was how he was doing, and he said, "You're all gloom and doom today." I he, said, "Well, you, you know, know, you you talk to uh, Republican leaders like Nick Langworthy, and Mark Molinaro is certainly their first choice." Uh, he's uh, he's a bona fide uh, uh, contender. Um, when it comes right down to it, though, do you think it really matters who the Republican candidate is, as long as they have someone who is qualified? I mean, is this is this a case where people are going to either vote for or against the incumbent Andrew Cuomo? I think it mostly comes down to Cuomo, and I think it partially comes down to Nixon. If she runs on a third party line, that that splits some of these votes off, and maybe gives a Republican candidate a chance. Um, I do I do think that just from my initial impressions of Molinaro that this is someone who could potentially pull some disillusioned Democratic votes. Mm-hmm. How many of those there are and when we actually get to November if that happens, uh you know, it remains to be seen. But but and it, as his platforms come out and as this campaign gets a little dirtier, then we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, right now, he looks looks like someone who might be able to. Put B- some bottom line votes. is that this is much more than a warm body on the ballot. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, I think so. I, he's a dynamic speaker. He, he's young. He was first elected when he was eighteen years old. So uh, he's been in politics for two decades somehow. Even though he's a, a younger guy, I, I think he's an interesting candidate. We'll see what happens with that. Do you, do you think that uh, the gubernatorial race uh, will have any impact on the down ballot races? on what happens in the state Senate or even the state assembly, or do you think that it's their standalone? We're going to, we have to get through the rest of the session and see what happens with this. You, IDC you, stuff. You, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Cynthia Nixon. Does she have any chance to unseat him in the primary in the democratic primary? Well, you know, Zephyr Teachout did a lot better than folks thought she would do. I mean, Zephyr Teachout, which is probably a, 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 a answer to a answer on final jeopardy some evening, you know, what is Zephyr Teachout would be the yeah. question. Uh, I never Zephyr Teachout sounded like a band to me the first yeah, time. Yeah, it did. Would one. be a great band. Um I I never want to underestimate the power of a celebrity candidate. Um you don't know what's gonna happen with someone who people We're talking know about Cynthia Nixon here from Sex in the City. Correct. Not, not Zephyr Teachout. Correct. Yes, Cynthia Nixon. Um at the same time I do think and especially in upstate that Andrew Cuomo is still a bigger name than Cynthia Nixon. Um but her winning or her hurting the governor are two different things. And if she could do well in this primary or run on a third party. Well, well, well the Democrat line. primary is all about New York City, isn't it? Yep. 
Yes, and uh, and Cynthia Nixon is certainly a New York City candidate. This, you know, this this might be an interesting year after all. Uh, listen, I'm I'm still in studio with Ryan Whalen. Uh, he's going to be staying over. Ryan, uh, Spectrum News Capital Tonight reporter. In a few moments, we'll be joined in studio by my assemblyman, uh, Democrat Robin Schiminger, by Ray Walter, a Republican assemblyman from Amherst, uh, and we'll be talking more state government. If you want to get on board, eight zero three zero nine thirty is the number. In the meantime, I'm Kevin Hardwick. You're listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. It's time to talk politics. It's Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. And welcome back to Hardline. This is Kevin Hardwick. Uh, staying over with me in the studio is Ryan Whalen. Uh, Ryan, Ryan, of course, Spectrum News Capital Tonight uh, reporter. Um, he is going to help me interrogate my uh, two guests we've Uh-oh. just let in the studio, a couple of assemblymen. My assemblyman, Robin Schiminger, uh, Democrat from Tonawanda. Robin, welcome to the program. Nice to be here, Captain. Ho- hope Thank to you. make you comfortable the next hour. We'll Thank see you. about that. And also Ray Walter, a Republican assemblyman from Amherst, a former colleague of mine on the Erie County Legislature. Ray, how are you doing? Wonderful, Kevin. Great to be with you. Excellent. Well, let's let's start, gentlemen, by talking about the, uh, the recently adopted uh, state budget. Congratulations, by the way for getting that out of the way. Uh, Robin, what uh, what sticks out to you about this state budget? What was what was the most uh, most interesting piece of it, if you will? Well, you know, the governor put out uh, a statement after the budget was adopted. I hold it in my hands. It's eight pages long, single space. We don't have enough time for you to read that. And so the highlights are in the perception of the, uh, the speaker. Let me just mention two things. One was, and ironically, this is something the governor does not mention among the highlights, is that even though he had proposed the elimination of Bundy aid for the independent colleges, we restored it. We put it back in the legislature. That, that, is, that is aid to private colleges like Canisius College, where I still spend some time and where you are an alum of, uh, that uh, for every degree we grant, we get some aid from, uh, from New York State. We are blessed to have such an intelligent interrogator here. Thank you. Thank you. And it is no strings attached funding. They can use it for institutional assistance for aid to students. Faculty it, raises. That too. And it is money that has flowed to these independent colleges. It's their sole real source of state support. And the governor proposed eliminating it. The legislature blocked that, put the funding back in. Ironically, that success is not listed among the many highlights that the governor published. Well, of published. course not. Of course not. And I think the other thing, which he does mention, though, is that, and Ray and I have different points of view on this, <clears throat> We did do something in this budget to address the so-called missiles that are coming in from Washington, the missiles that the governor has cited as negatively affecting taxpayers in New York State as a result of the Trump tax code revisions, okay? Uh, It's not exactly what I had proposed. I had proposed something earlier in January. Governor modeled a proposal on mine. I'm flattered. This, but it this, was this not addresses a, the problem that I'm not able to uh, uh, export as much of my high New York State taxes to D.C. as possible because I itemize my deductions, or I, I'm, I'm about to file my taxes. I itemize my deductions. I probably have, I don't know, a little over $20,000 worth of uh, deductions with everything, including my, my state taxes. Uh, the standard deduction this year, this year is about $12,000 for married couples, so... 
uh, it makes sense to standardize or to uh, take the uh, take the itemized deductions. Next year, however, if I have the same amount of deductions, um, you know, I'm, the standard deduction is doubling up to twenty four thousand. So it, you know, all my state taxes, all my charitable contributions, you know, I, I, they're not going to do me any good. But it sounds like you're 4000 to the good anyway, Kevin. So uh, I think you're going to do all right. And I think that uh, what we're finding is well, the vast well, majority, but I, but I the also, vast majority mm, of New York State taxpayers that's, that's, are going to find themselves in a better position. That's Republican Ray Walter. No, but, and, I, but, but here's the thing. But I lost my exemptions. They increased the standard deduction, but I lost my exemptions, uh, which was about $4,000 for every person in my house. So I'm not really... 4,000 of the good, but we can get into that in, in, in a moment. So so something was done this year, Robin, to address that? It was not what I had proposed, but it was what the governor had proposed. And three things were done. One was unworkable and not good, and I did not like. That's the addition of a new payroll tax in New York State. Mm. Uh, one was done that affects municipalities and school districts, which will be cumbersome to play out. But the third thing that was done is analogous, but not the same as identically what I had proposed, and that is the creation of a fund or funds at the state level into which taxpayers like Kevin Hartwick next, well, in the future, Mm -hmm. can make a contribution which would be tax credit, Mm -hmm. a tax creditable contribution. Uh, And in that way, by making that contribution, Having it then also be a federally deductible charitable deduction, uh, you can somehow recapture some of what you've lost as a result of the capping, which you haven't mentioned yet, the capping of state and local mm-hmm. tax deductibility under the new federal well, tax Well, that, does, that doesn't affect me. I don't get – if I were in Westchester County, maybe that would make a difference to me. Listen, let me, let me hold you there and move on to Ray and ask Ray what, uh, what came out of the, uh, the state budget that you were most proud of or most concerned with. Well, one of the most important things we can do is invest in education, and we had a significant increase in education aid. So, uh, you know, our school districts uh, around here – are going to see a significant increase in foundation aid as well as uh, other school aid. We also made a, a, had an increase um, of over $100 uh, per full-time student at our community colleges, which we I know that's important to you, Kevin, that we're investing in Erie Community it, College definitely. and Niagara Community <laughs> College. Um, and then also our libraries. We uh, you know restored the governor's drastic cuts that he makes every single year, and in, in addition we put another million dollars into our library system. So I think those are those are important things. But I think the most important thing we did was we stood strong and st- struck down the governor's proposed more than billion dollar tax increases on various uh, <coughs> items throughout the state budget. No, if if you're just tuning in, I'm sitting here. This is Kevin Hardwick uh, hosting the show today. Uh, sitting here with that was Ray Walter, uh, New York State Assemblyman from Amherst, a Republican, uh, Democrat Robin Schiminger from uh, from Tonawanda, my uh, Assemblyman. I'm going to turn over the next question to Ryan Whalen from Spectrum News, our Grand Inquisitor in training. Sure. Uh, I guess we'll start with Ray because he's uh, we we just spoke with him here, uh, but Ray. I think the narrative that came out after the budget was that they were, to a certain extent, able to separate policy agenda from the budget, which has been a regular complaint. 
It, did you feel that way? And if that was the case, how did that happen this year as opposed to other years? Yeah, certainly as you compared to the uh, last couple of years uh, with the very policy-heavy budgets, there was much less policy in this budget. I think that was uh, done out of necessity in order to get it done on time. And also I think that the governor didn't want to get bogged down in a uh, in a budget battle that that took us into April and later when he's got uh, you know a serious uh, threat on the left politically from Cynthia Nixon and, uh, you know, a real challenge from uh, Mark Molinaro as uh, our gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side. So I think, uh, you know, politics played a role in getting some of that policy out of there. And, uh, you know, much, much more so than many other years. A lot of that policy dropped out. And I think you could also <laughs> say that, uh, and, you know, certainly present company excluded, but New York City assembly people are dying for a pay raise, uh, which I certainly oppose. I don't think we need it. I don't think it needs to be in there, and it certainly shouldn't be in the budget. But there was a pay raise commission in this in this budget that got snuck in there at the uh, at the 11th hour. And uh, I think that, uh, that some of the New York City Democrats were happy to give up on some of their policy discussions to get that pay raise. So... Robin, do you agree with that that pay raise that uh, we've been talking about for the last couple of years now? I know the governor says he needs it for the, the people that are working in his office to keep it competitive, but uh, what about some of your colleagues in New York City? Do they need it as well? Well, I haven't been pounding the table for uh, a pay raise, and the idea of a commission is one that was embodied in a budget a couple of years ago, and the commission did its work, and at the end of the day, because of the structuring of the commission, um, the governor's appointees on the commission said no to any increase in compensation. <clears throat> so there was no change. A new commission is now established, which will make recommendations again. Uh, and I think that the time frame is the end of this year. That was important for <clears throat> many members. I didn't I, I know what the salary is. I work for that salary. I'm content. But it was a part, it was a late starter in the budget, and it probably helped, just as Ray said, get out some of those policy issues that the governor had stuck into his budget. Excellent. Listen, uh, gentlemen, we have to take a break now, but when we return, uh, uh, Ryan uh, Whalen from Spectrum News will be here, as well as our assemblyman, uh, Ray Walter, and Robin Schiminger. In the meantime, I'm Kevin Hardwick. You're listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. And welcome back to Hardline. This is Kevin Hardwick live in studio with Ryan Whalen, uh, the uh, Grand Inquisitor in training uh, for Hardline. He's from Spectrum News. Also, Assemblyman Ray Walter, Republican from Amherst, and my Assemblyman Robin Schiminger from uh, Tonawanda. We had a, uh, I'll tell you, it was a uh, probably a five-minute break, and uh, it was all discussion in here. And uh, Robin wants to say a lot more about his charitable tax contribution. Uh, and it, it's something that's important to me. It really is. But we don't have time to talk about it here, Robin, oh, okay. uh, especially with you doing the talking. But if, if someone, <laughs> including myself, want to find out more about this, where can I go? Is it online someplace? You just contact my office. But what was enacted... Must I? Yeah, I'm sorry, yes. You like my office. I like your office. You have a nice staff. Thank you. Uh, but what was enacted was not exactly what I had proposed. What was enacted... I, I understand that, but if I want to find out what's enacted... next year, and then there's a lag in addition to that. Oh, so. man. Uh, it, it, it sounds interesting. Something tells me I'm not going to make out well regardless, but we'll, we'll see about that. 
Listen, I want to move on. I want to talk about the uh, something Ryan and I talked about half an hour or so ago, and that's the uh, uh, dissolution, apparent dissolution of the uh, Independent Democratic Caucus in the Senate. Now, you guys are in the Assembly side, but how do you how do you see this affecting uh, uh, Albany and 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 uh, New York State government, and specifically those of us in Western New York? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? This phenomenon has occurred before in which there is a pronouncement and announcement made that the Democrats in the Senate are going to come back together and there will be a Democratic majority. We've seen this before. All I'd say now is stay tuned. Let's see what happens. And uh, Ray and I, of course, serve in the upper house and the state assembly. We do not get that involved in the state Senate and mm-hmm. we avoid it as much as possible, except that we have to pass our bills in that house. But it's, 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 it's beyond my area of expertise to really figure out and predict how that's all going to play out. Ray, uh, the Republican-controlled state Senate is the last bastion of Republican power in New York state government. What would this mean if the Democrats took over, either either now or after the next election, which is as early as November. Well, I think it goes further than Republican and Democrat control. I think it's about upstate control and, you know, upstate and suburban control versus a completely dominated New York City uh, government. I mean, we already have all of our statewide electeds and uh, the leadership in, obviously, uh, the the assembly is dominated by New York City, um, you know, as, as much as a voice that a member of the minority can have, the way that the uh, rules of the Senate and the Assembly work, the leadership controls just about everything. They control the hiring and firing of, of the staff. They control what bills get come, come to the floor to be voted on. So, uh, you know, when that leadership is centered, centered in New York City and the surrounding areas, then the voice of upstate and suburban and and rural voters is going to be virtually eliminated. And so uh, I don't see any changes for the rest of the year this year, uh, you know, despite what might happen in the special elections. I just don't see a a way for that control to really change. But uh, you know, up in the uh, upcoming we, elections, we go we'll through this happens. every we go through this every two years. Though I mean, uh, there there's no question that uh, after this November, Democrats will still control the assembly, much to to raise chagrin, I'm sure. But uh, uh, you know, control of the Senate is up for grabs, and if the Senate goes, well, I guess it also depends on the gubernatorial election, which we'll talk about uh, uh, shortly. Uh, but it's uh, it's important for those of us in uh, upstate New York as well as the rest of the state. Next next question goes to Ryan Whalen. Hey, Robin, I, I would be interested to get your take on this. Um, if this divide really does exist between New York City and upstate as a member of the Assembly who is – the general idea is that the Assembly is dominated by New York City, right? Um, is it more about policy and ideology, or is it really an upstate money versus downstate money issue once you get over, over to the capital? That's a very deep question. What I have noticed over the years is that many of these supposedly downstate uh, ideological positions are actually shared by people upstate as well, uh, somewhat surprisingly. And certainly there is a greater level of uh, interest and support for some of those things downstate, but there's also an upstate uh, 
support also, whether it's concentrated in cities uh, or inner ring suburbs, don't know. But the, the, the question about dollar flow is, is a question that has been around for, for ages. And the reality is, and this surprises people when I say this, the reality is that New York City does generate for the state more revenue for the state than uh, the upstate areas, that, that downstate generates more revenues because of those high incomes down there. And we, we get our fair share, probably more than our fair share, uh, when you look at the just hard, cold dollar amounts. And that surprises mm -hmm. people when I say that. But uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Ray, would you concur with uh, Robin's analysis, or would you like to add something to that? You know, I, I think it is more than just a, an ideological difference between New York City and downstate and, and upstate. I do think that there is a, an economic interest, and there we have evidence of that from when the Democrats briefly controlled the Senate in 2009, 2010. Um, you know, we saw distinct decrease in education aid coming to upstate, uh, massive increase in taxes. Um, you know, so there was, uh, there was clearly a, 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 a disparity between the representation we were getting in, in upstate and western New York than, than New York City. So, um, you know, the, the other thing is, yeah, maybe they generate some, some more um, money as far as the state budget goes in the New York City downstate area. Uh, but they do that on the back of the resources that upstate sends them, whether it's water or energy, um, you know, you name it. I mean, with uh, food, uh, you know, we generate a lot of resources that uh, New York City and downstate depend on, uh, natural that, resources. That's that's kind of interesting, Robin. He's, you know, you say that they they generate a lot more money, a lot more tax revenue comes from there. Certainly, Wall Street is is huge. I mean, and and people forget that 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 people down there make a lot of money, and we tax that. And people up here, you know, uh, work hard, but we don't make as much money as uh, folks in New York City on average, uh, and and so we don't send as much to the state treasury. But Ray talks about resources. Uh, certainly, our hydropower. A lot of that, you know, we generate it here. We pay the price for that here, and it 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 goes downstate. I mean, is that something that has to be taken into the into account? I think the real thing is this, and I failed to include it in my answer to Ryan's question. The real thing is this, that upstate needs a more competitive climate mm -hmm. for people and for businesses, okay? But we are burdened with the culture that comes from downstate, yeah. which says it's a great idea, as was the case, Ray mentioned this in 2009, to increase the you state income taxes. Up, I and pick so up. we get burdened with that culture. Sure, right? I want to pick and up I on some of this. I want to pick up on some of this after the break. We do have to break now for the uh, for the bottom of the hour news. However, when we come back, uh, Ryan Whalen will still be here from Spectrum News, and Robin Schiminger and Ray Walter from the New York State Assembly. Uh, you can join us if you want. Uh, give us a call at eight zero three zero nine thirty. In the meantime, I'm Kevin Hardwick. You're listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. And welcome back to Hardline. This is Kevin Hardwick live in studio with Ryan Whalen of Spectrum News and Assemblyman Ray Walter and Robin Schiminger just sitting around during the break talking about conspiracy theories. Uh, hey, I want to move on to economic development in a moment, but we have a leftover uh, comment 
uh, from the previous segment, and we're going to bring in a caller. Uh, Debbie from Grand Island is with us. Debbie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, you have a you have a uh, question for the panel. Well, yes. Um, relative to your discussion about the differences between how New York City is treated and how uh, upstate is treated, um, I just read recently that, for example, um, pre-K was pretty much funded for New York City but ignored uh, upstate. When upstate wanted Uber and Lyft, when New York City already had it, we had to beg and plead and write letters and everything else in order for us to get it. And I'm just wondering, you know, what? why is there this difference? And if the reason is because New York City is so different from the rest of the state, then mm-hmm. maybe people who say that New York City should be a separate state, correct. De- Debbie, thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to cut you loose, uh, and you can listen to the answer on the air. But thank you for calling. Uh, gentlemen, who wants to feel that one? Hey, look, for a long time, I have maintained and believed, and we even did research to show that it would work and it did not violate the state constitution, that is to treat the two differently, to differentiate between New York City and its MTA region and the balance of the state. Uh, They have different interests on there. And uh, sometimes, sometimes that gets lost in the wash because groups that advocate tend to be statewide groups, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't want to advocate to treat one end of the state differently. But I, th- I think it's, it's just an ACES approach to, res- to, re- to reflect the difference in attitudes between down and upstate. Very good. I agree. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Ray. Ray. Well, well Ray, Ray gave us a short answer there, so let me begin uh, the economic development discussion with him. Ray, we've heard so much in the last few years about the Buffalo Billion, about what <laughs> Albany is doing for us, and we have seen some results. Do you think that uh, we've gotten our bang for our billion? No, uh, we, ha- we haven't, and let's be real. I mean, unless you're the cheerleaders at the Buffalo News editorial board, you know, cheering for whatever the governor has to do and say, um, the reality is they cannot make a connection between what they've done with the Buffalo Billion and any type of resurgence uh, within western New York or Buffalo. A lot of that has to do with things that have nothing to do with the governor, whether it be the waterfront, which is from the power authority relicensing and, and a lot more to do with Congressman Higgins than, than certainly Governor Cuomo, uh, historic tax credits, which preceded Governor Cuomo, the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus, which the seeds for that were planted long before Cuomo ever took office. Those are the things that are driving yeah. the renaissance of Buffalo. We talk about the Buffalo Billion. The first thing that comes to mind is corruption and bid rigging. And that's uh, and that's a real problem, and that's the problem with the entire Cuomo economic development plan. Well, well, well certainly you've gotten into a dust-up or two with the governor's people on the topic of economic development. Uh, how how could the money have been spent differently? Well, well, they do some things really good. This project, this Northland project with the, mm-hmm. uh, the manufacturing works and being able to develop uh, – uh, you know, new man- manufacturing techniques and sharing that uh, information with uh, the employers who are already here. Workforce development. When we can invest in the existing companies that are here that have toiled under New York's oppressive regime for so many years, when we can help support them, we're doing the right thing as far as economic development goes. These you know, silver bullet big projects that have failed throughout the state, uh, one after another, and have been associated with corruption when it comes to the conviction of the governor's right-hand man, Joe Percoco, and the bid-rigging scandal that's coming up with Elaine Calieros, the, the lead guy on, on the governor's economic development programs. 
Um, that's what happens when you have these big projects that you're picking the winners and losers for. Robin, there certainly are a lot of uh, questions hanging over this, this whole economic development uh, uh, area. There certainly are. And, and, and Ray <clears throat> raises a number of them. Uh, and, and let me just mention one particular aspect to the overall approach. The overall approach should be in economic development if you're going to have to incentivize companies to put the incentive at the end once they perform. That was not the approach here. The approach here in the Buffalo Billion and other projects around the state was to build them a building and hope that they come and populate it with jobs. That was what mm -hmm. happened with this giant uh, highway garage down on <laughs> South Park in South Buffalo. Uh, the building was built in a hope that a company, and there were multiple companies over the years that were going to be occupying that, that it would be producing 1,400 and some manufacturing factory jobs it, at it, that site. It Just certainly worked in, happened. It, it worked in Field of Dreams. They built it and they did come. That was in the movies. I see. And that takes a you know, $400 million subsidy in the state of New York to get those kind of movies made also. Right. Ryan Whalen has the next question. Isn't it an important distinction, though, that the state does own that building where, where Tesla's housed? Because a, a lot of people don't understand that, that the state has that. Is that a, a bargaining piece, something, something that you can hold as you're trying to get those jobs? The, there? the state's landlord to a lot of empty pieces of property throughout the state. I don't think that uh, – I think it's the $750 million and then some that's been invested into that facility of hardworking taxpayer dollars with no real commitments uh, from any of the parties to the, to the deal, whoever those parties may have been. And it's changed multiple times since the uh, the original contract was written. So it's just not the entire philosophy uh, is, is wrong of, of picking these winners and losers uh, and not just creating an environment where all of the businesses can succeed, where we're decreasing uh, the burden that government places on our on our on our businesses, whether they be large manufacturers or small mom and pop shops on the main streets throughout uh, upstate and western New York, it's it's that's the problem. It's not incentivizing these huge investments that have typically failed throughout the state. But you won't become Silicon Valley, right? That's that's what uh, the governor likes to say. Is Silicon Valley started out with these small startups and 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 grew this big industry without those state incentives, right? So. It, is it well, that would, you don't would, need to be Silicon Valley? What would help is if the economic climate were more favorable, if the taxes were not high, the regulatory burden was not high, the workers' comp, UI costs so high. That's what deflates our upstate economy. Uh, and I hear what you're saying in that question. Your question is, well, look, the state is not really giving them anything. The state owns the building. Of course, the state has spent three-quarters of a billion dollars, building a billion to suit their exact specifications and equipping it. But, yes, the state does own the building. And even with that happening, uh, the companies are way underperforming in terms of the commitments that they made, whether it's Tesla or SolarCity or Saliva, going back in time. Am, am, am I am I hearing this correctly? I mean, we've got uh, Democrat uh, Robin Schiminger from the Assembly. We've got Republican Ray Walter from the Assembly. You guys are pretty much in agreement on this? 
Yes, I, I think so. You're, and there's a number you're looking of at the same world. I, I think we see it in very much the same way. And, and I think that uh, it's not a partisan issue. It's about what works and what doesn't work. And the problem also isn't just the failure of the programs, but the corruption that's associated with it. And when we talk about corruption, uh, you know, Governor, uh, our hopefully future Governor uh, Molinaro was here the other day. He talked about a corruption tax that every single one of us pays because the cost of these projects is inflated. Uh, the the failure of the project goes back to the taxpayers. Each and every one of us are paying that corruption oh. tax. It's coming out of our pocket when these things fail and when these when these uh, you know the, the the bid rigging and and you name it go on. Uh, that is coming out of our pockets as taxpayers. You, you know, Ray, you mentioned you mentioned this. You mentioned uh, uh, Mark Molinaro, Republican candidate or a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, let me use that as our segue to the next segment. We do have to take a break, but when we return, we'll be talking about the gubernatorial race. I don't know. I apologize to our listeners. Uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to get in any calls. Uh, this is uh, this is going really quickly this morning, but we'll do our best. Uh, when we come back, uh, uh, Ray and uh, Robin will still be here, um, uh, as will Ryan. And uh, in the meantime, I'm Kevin Hardwick. You're listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. And welcome back to Hardline. This is Kevin Hardwick sitting here with Assemblyman Ray Walter and Robin Schiminger, also Ryan Whalen uh, from Spectrum News. Ryan is uh, has a burning question about the gubernatorial campaign, which he'll ask in a minute. We have a full bank of callers. I'm only going to be able to get to one of them. I apologize to everybody else. Uh, but uh, we'll try to squeeze in a question now from uh, Jerry in uh, Buffalo. Jerry, it's got to be quick. We're low on time. Yeah, you, you know, what's the biggest thing? And <clears throat> I've listened to the, the, yeah, I've been in business since 1970, Kevin. Mm-hmm. It just amazes me where, you know, and, and personalities have nothing to do with it. $750 million that was basically given to one, one person organization that was borrowed through the back door through our state university system. And I think what's really insulting to the taxpayer, $1 a year. And I got in a discussion with someone about that. So that tells me to return to the taxpayer simple math is 700 million years yeah uh, uh jerry thank thanks for squeezing in here i gotta gotta drop you gentlemen quick comment jerry's right all right, right exactly <laughs> there there you go right th- thank you jerry for calling and again i apologize to everybody else who was lined up where we've only got a few minutes left in the show and we do want to get to ryan's question ryan ray uh, mark molinaro ent- enters the race i saw you over at the uh, press conference uh this past week I, I mean my first question about him i guess is what kind of republican is he is is he do you find him to be very conservative do you find him to be more on the moderate side you know people are going to learn more about him but initial impressions i think he's a pragmatist i mean i think if you look at his record in dutchess county he gets things done he brings people together he's lowered taxes he's lowered the cost of doing business and i mean really lower taxes not just lower the rate but lower the actual property tax levy Uh, so he's saving people money in dutchess county and he's getting things done and uh, i think he's got a record to run on uh, and, you know, just a, an overall positive message and drawing a stark comparison with the governor. I mean, Mark is is hopeful, uh, honest, um, inclusive uh, as compared to the, the governor who has been very negative and very divisive. Uh, and, you know, certainly corruption has touched his administration, if not himself. Uh, so it, it is just a stark contrast between what we have right now and Mark Molinaro, who could be, 
you know, a, a, a great candidate and an excellent governor. Mark Molinaro is certainly an attractive Republican candidate. But, Robin, I'll ask you the question I asked Ryan uh, last hour. And that is, uh, does it matter? Is this just going to be an election in November uh, between Andrew Cuomo and not Andrew Cuomo? Hard question to answer, of course. Uh, I think people will look at the alternative. They abs- they'll absolutely look at the alternative. And but but, but the alternative is fairly attractive. I mean, it's not a – you know, Molinero yeah. is not going to be a warm body on the ballot. We've seen those in the past in various races. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is someone who's certainly qualified. He runs, uh, runs Dutchess County, does a, a fairly decent job there by all accounts. But the question is, you know, will – does it come down to uh, Andrew Cuomo running against himself? I think that – With all the baggage that Ray has alluded to. That will be part of it. That will be part of it. And the similar uh, dynamic will occur in a Democratic primary if that happens. Uh, Ray, Ray, the the Republicans have to be licking their chops about that Democratic primary. Well, it certainly creates um, an opportunity for uh, the media and for the you know a lot of the people to have a focus and a spotlight on all of the problems with this administration. You know, the governor is going to go around. Uh, touting uh, all of his accomplishments, but there are as as many as accomplishments there may be, there's just as many problems. And Cynthia Nixon is a big name, and the media seems to really be enthralled with her, and the governor's reaction to her has been uh, really petrified, if if I could say that. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think this is going to really put a spotlight on all of the flaws in this administration, and that creates a great opportunity for a, a, a wonderful candidate like Mark Molinaro to come in uh, with a positive message, a message of inclusivity, a message of getting things done, and a record to back it up. I see uh, Republicans openly rooting for Cynthia Nixon. I, I think there was a photo of the uh, the chairman of New York State uh, saying how happy he was Nixon got in the race. It, is that... It can't, it can't be because you share the same politics. So is it just because it hurts the governor that the Republicans are rooting for Nixon? I think it because of what I said. I think it places a spotlight onto the flaws uh, of the Cuomo administration, and, and she's going to be beating that drum. And some of the things we agree with, certainly the accountability and the transparency that's been lacking with this governor and the corruption that's followed him. Uh, is is a drum that you know has been a bipartisan drum that's been beaten, uh, you know, throughout uh, Albany and all of the state. And when she hits on that note, uh, we're certainly going to be right there beside her, uh, you know, cheering her on. Robin, you thought my last question was tough. Let me ask another t- another <laughs> tough question. The the looming primary here, and and a qualified candidate on the Republican side, mm-hmm. and Mark Molinaro. How is that going to impact the end of session uh, for for you guys? Because there are two log jams in Albany. One occurs at budget time when there are items trying to get in. And the other, of course, comes sometime in June, that last night of session, which is indeed the last night of session. It's an all-nighter. And all the deals get cut at the last minute. Will all of this politics on the outside, I mean, you've got... You not, not only have the gubernatorial race, you have the control of the Senate up for grabs and the IDC dissolution and all of that. Is that going to make a difference in the end of session? Probably will, and I think it's important to note that one of the reasons the governor set the date for the special elections that are to be held as a date after the budget was over. Mm-hmm. He did not want to have the elections occurring during budget adoption. How this all plays out at end of session Gosh, hard, do you, do you hard think to it'll figure. Help, do you think They'll, it'll help you get your big five through? 
you know, it might. The so-called Cynthia effect will loom, I think, large. People, people probably come. don't know what the big five are that we were talking about during the break. Do you want to enlighten them quickly? Well, Ray and I, and Ray supports all these initiatives. Thank you, Ray. These are initiatives aimed at making our economic development programs in New York State more accountable and more transparent. You know, it's all well and good to convict people of crimes, but it's equally important to set in place a structure by which it is impossible or much more difficult to commit the crime in the first place. Clean contracting, the proposal of Tom DiNapoli, uh, putting the REDCs under the public officer's law. Re Regional Economic Development Council. Right, right. You're slowing me down. Sorry. Re returning the reporting requirements <laughs> to the Startup New York program, making entities like uh, Fuller Road Management and Fort Schuyler subject to the public officer's law, and on and on. These are proposals that have been blocked by the governor and which hopefully will get done in the final Rick, Ray, is this, a, this another area where uh, Republican Ray Walter agrees with Assemblyman uh, Robin Schiminger? Yes, and he left off the big one, the database of deals where you could research and search a, a, a searchable database where you could look at every uh, uh, project that the state has incentivized and, and look at those deals well, and what they're producing. So, yeah, we agree uh, on these because we I and, think we and, agree in making sure that gonna, the government we're going to have to end on that accountable. note of agreement, which is a good note to end on. And I want to thank all my guests today for uh, coming in, Ray and Robin and, and Ryan and everybody else. Uh, Meet the Press is next. Uh, it's been a hoop being here. I want to thank uh, producer Jerry Craig. also want to thank uh, Tim Wenger for giving me this opportunity. You've been listening to Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN.